let's let's just pray Lord thank you for being here with us tonight thank you Lord that you're with us all the time and Lord we pray that you'll open your word to us now Lord we thank you that everything we need to know is is here in the Bible Lord all the truth that you want us to have and Father I pray that your truth will set us free that all the time you'll be making us as you want and Lord, that you'll renew our minds according to the truth in the Bible. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will just anoint all of us now. And Lord, that you'll just really speak your word into our hearts, that it might become our experience. Because Lord, we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. <coughs> right, if you turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16... And we're going to read a reasonably long section. Matthew chapter 16. And we're starting at verse 13. Now, you'll remember last time that we're in this section, in this series on the gifts of the Spirit, where we're looking at fellowship, the whole thing about the church. And last week, we took an overview, an overview of the subject, and we looked at what the Bible taught about the church universal, the body of Christ, the church throughout time. Whereas what we're going to do tonight is that we're going to be looking at what it means, not just to be part of the body of Christ, universal, but what it means to be part of a particular, specific, local church. So, Matthew 16, and we'll read from verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. <coughs> and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Just say a little bit about that uh, right here. This thing about when uh, sort of Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. What's happening is there's a play on words, there's a pun here in the Greek language. And the point being that when Jesus, Peter's name meant a little stone, all right, a little pebble, all right, and Jesus said, you shall be Peter, a little pebble, all right? And on this rock, I will build my church. And that that word for rock means a great unhewn rock, rather like the rock of Gibraltar or something like that. So really what Jesus is saying, I am the actual rock upon which the church is going to be built, but Peter, you're a tiny little part of it, all right? You're a little stone, whereas I am the massive rock. All right, it's not, uh, as some say, the idea that Peter was going to be the first bishop or anything like that, the first bishop of Rome. And he says, I will build my church and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. Now, the literal Greek there isn't powers of death, it's gates of Hades. That's what it means, the gates of Hades. Hades being 
the place of the dead. And in order to understand what Jesus is saying here, it's an idiom that he's using, that the Jews used. And <coughs> in olden times, what would happen is that cities would be out in the middle of nowhere, and they were always under threat of invasion. And so what would happen was that cities would be surrounded by walls, uh, and the cities usually had one gate where people were allowed to come in and go out. Now, the cities would be ruled by a board of elders, rather like the borough council, as it were, the councillors. And they were the guys in charge of the city. And what they used to do is that when they had one of their council meetings, as it were, they sat in the gate. This was where, they, where the elders met to discuss the future and the business of the city. And the point about sitting at the gates is that they were the ones who had the power to say whether or not someone could come into their city or whether they couldn't. So the point is the executive decisions regarding a city were taken by the elders and they always had those meetings sitting in the gates. So what you've got here is an idiom for authority. That's really what it means. And what Jesus is saying here is that the authority of death Hades being the place of the death, the authority of death can never prevail against the church. That's what he's actually saying there. So therefore, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Go down now to verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, <coughs> If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? So then, what I'm going to do is to take those verses, or in particular, one bit that Jesus said. And we're going to try and get from it an understanding of what it means to be part of a local church, a particular church. And what we are going to do is that we're going to look at three words to find out what they actually mean in the original Greek. And the three words are, first of all, church itself. We're going to find out what a church actually is. Membership. What does membership mean? What's that all about? And then fellowship, and we're going to see what that means. And so the bit that we're going to home in on is in fact that Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, for those of you who like things in order, um, I would maintain that the three most important things in the universe are these. The most important thing in the universe is, have you been born again? Have you become a disciple of Jesus? That is the most important thing in the universe. The second most important thing is, right, having become a Christian, have you been baptised in the Spirit? Because without the power of the Spirit, you're wasting your time. It's like sending a soldier out onto a battlefield without giving him his gun. So the second most important thing is, have you been baptised in the Spirit? But the third most important thing in the universe is being part of a true New Testament Church. One cannot emphasize sufficiently in the Bible the importance of being part of a church. Now, there's something interesting here, because when Jesus said 
I will build my church. Uh, the original languages reveal a, a, a whole kind of uh, arena of meaning that the English translation doesn't. And when Jesus said, I will build my church, the Greek word that he uses for build is a very, very specific word. And it's oikodomeo, and it means to build a house. It doesn't mean to build a barn, doesn't mean to build a power station or to build a car. It means quite specifically to build a house. And that literally what Jesus is saying here, I will build my house, my church. That is a literal translation. And that what we're going to see is that the church is literally the place where Jesus wants to live. The church is the place Jesus lives in. It is his home. You'll remember in John 15, in his teaching about being the vine and the branches, that one of the things Jesus said there, he said to the disciples, abide in me and I in you. He's saying, I want you to live in me, but he says, I want to abide. And that's what it means to live. If you abide in your house, you live there. Jesus is saying, I want to live in you. Abide means to dwell or inhabit. And of course, since Jesus rose again from the dead and ascended back into heaven, bodily, that is where Jesus lives. Jesus is living in heaven with his body, all right? That is where his literal physical body is. It's in heaven. Every now and then he pops down. We know that happened in Bible times, still happens. There are times when Jesus temporarily comes down from heaven and physically appears on earth, but that's pretty rare. So he is in heaven with his literal body up, up there. But as we saw last week, we're the body of Christ. Jesus also wants a body down here as well. And that body that he wants down here is you and I. It's the church. Now, it is important to emphasize, and I know that all of you will agree with this doctrinally, but we all get into very, very bad habits. We must remind ourselves that the church is people. The church is nothing whatsoever to do with buildings or chapels or special sacred places. And yet many, many Christians, even though they know that, they talk about, they say, I'm going to church. You see? And what they mean is, I'm going to this special building, that is my church. That's not their church, can you see? We agree with this, but even I, I find myself still now using the word church in the completely wrong context. And of course the terrible thing is that we've got buildings that are called churches. We have changed the meaning of the word. And of course this is where false doctrine comes in. It changes the meaning of words and it leads God's people into false teaching. So for instance, wherever it is you sometimes, as it were, go to church, if you go to fellowships that meet in special buildings, for heaven's sake, understand that that building is not God's house. I know so many Christians, and they say things like, we're going to God's house. That is completely false teaching. A building can never be God's house. Uh, when Paul was... Uh, working in Athens in Acts 17, he said this, this is something he preached, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines 
special buildings made by men. We must understand that God doesn't live in buildings. God lives in people. He lives in Christians, in his people. And in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 9, Paul says, you are God's field, God's building. This is very important to understand. Don't get church mixed up with buildings. It's got nothing to do with buildings whatsoever. You and I are the church. The church is people, Christians, the people in whom Jesus lives. Now, there are certain things that I want to home in on in regards to this. And the first one is this. Jesus said, I will build my church. And it's to see that Jesus builds his church. Jesus said that he was going to do it. In Psalm 127 and verse 1, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they that build it labour in vain. Now, can you see how important this is? This is an encouragement. Can you consider the mess we would end up in if the responsibility to build the church was ours? And the reason that the church, inverted commas, is in such a mess today is precisely because we have made it our responsibility. And now we've got to start giving the whole thing back to Jesus. It is Jesus' responsibility to build the church. In Ephesians 2.10, Paul says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are his workmanship. And that Greek word for workmanship is poema. And it's the, it's the Greek word that we get poem from. And it's specifically the Greek word for a work of art. Not like going out, uh, outside in the garden and, and building yourself a garage. Not that sort of workmanship. But the workmanship of the poet who writes a poem. The workmanship of the artist who paints a picture. That's what the word means. And of course, when the poet writes or when the artist paints, what's happening is that they are trying to express something of themselves through their workmanship, through their work of art. And what Paul is saying, that we are literally God's work of art. God wants to express something of himself to this world. And you and I are the workmanship through which he's going to do it. But can you see, it is his workmanship. A painting doesn't paint itself. A poem doesn't write itself. And in the same way, our Christian lives must be something that the Lord is doing, not something that we are doing. Now, that is important to understand. There's a great relief in knowing that. It's Jesus' responsibility to build his church, and that can take a great weight off of our shoulders. Jesus said he is going to do it, and therefore we can trust him that he will. But on the other hand, it's Jesus' responsibility, but he said, I will build my church. And this is what we've got to realise, it's Jesus' church. Now, if the church belongs to Jesus, that means the church has got to be built his way. It's got to be done as Jesus says, not as anyone else says. Remember, we're seeing that the church is Jesus' home. It's where he wants to live. And you see, in our flat, Belinda and I decide what goes on. It's our home. <coughs> 
It's not for anyone else to say what we do or don't do there. It is up to us what we do in our home. And in precisely the same way, it is Jesus who must decide what is going to go on in his church. And what I want to show you now is that all that glitters is not gold. And I want to show you that today we have the wrong definition of what the church actually is. And it's very easy to accept things as being a church which aren't a church. In Revelation 3, you've got some of the letters that Jesus sent himself to some of the early churches. And remember, we've seen that the church is Jesus' home. Now, there was a church in Laodicea. Now, you know that very famous verse when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hear my voice and open the door, I'll come in. Now, what happens with that verse is that people use it evangelistically. They say that this is you know, that this is Jesus calling on non-Christians to let him into their lives. Well, that's a fair application, but let me tell you, that is not what that text means in the slightest. Because it's in a letter that Jesus wrote to the church at Laodicea. <coughs> and Jesus wrote to them, and he said to them, I am knocking on the door, will you let me in? And in Laodicea, in New Testament times, there was a church that Jesus couldn't live in. Can you see? Jesus wasn't in that church. The church is where Jesus wants to live, and yet here in the Bible, we're seeing a church where far from Jesus living in it, he's saying, look lads, you've kicked me out, will you please let me back in? This is my home, will you let me into my home? Now what we tend to do is that we tend to paint the picture in our minds that uh, kind of, we take those verses that Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, alright. Now, and we say, right, Christians come together, therefore that's a church, therefore Jesus is there with them. And yet the thing that we need to understand is that you can end up using that verse in the name of Jesus, almost like a, a magic charm abracadabra, as, as if there's power in saying the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. There's no power in the words, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus, in the slightest. Now, what does it mean to gather in the name of Jesus? Does it mean that you come together and say, Lord, we're here in your name? Is that what it means? No, it doesn't. It means far more than that. Think of it, even in our language today, what does the phrase, in the name of, mean? Well, I'll tell you, a policeman, steps out in front of your car holding a thing that he's pointing at you and you're doing 90 miles an hour and you screech to a halt and he says stop in the name of the law. It means authority. A policeman has the authority in the name of the law to arrest you if you've done wrong. Therefore, together in the name of Jesus means quite specifically this and nothing else. It means to gather together under the authority of Jesus. When a group of people are coming together in order to live under the authority of Jesus, that is what it means to gather in the name of Jesus. And that if people aren't doing that, and remember, the only way we can live in submission to Jesus is by living in submission to the Bible. 
And if you've got groups of Christians who aren't doing that, therefore, it's all very well to say, Lord, we're here in your name, but that isn't what gathering in the Lord's name actually means. There's far more to it than that. The name of Jesus isn't a magic charm or anything like that. There was another church in Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis. Now listen to what Jesus said to them. He said, I know your works, you have the name of being alive and you are dead. Now two things there. Firstly, Jesus says you have the name of being alive. At the time of the early church, if you had a church that had the name of being alive, then you would expect it to be pretty full, pretty charismatic, pretty worshipful. Can you see all the trimmings are there, aren't they? Jesus said, I know that you have the name of being alive, but he said, and you are dead. Look, this is the point. Eleven dead men don't make a football team. Even if you put the kit on them. Can you see? Eleven corpses lying kitted out in their shirts and shorts will not be very effective at playing football. And can you see, we have got to get beyond this in name only. One of the things we really suffer from in this country is nominal Christianity. It passes by name. We use the appellation, a church, so very, very easily. Whereas the Bible uses it in a very specific way. A church is a group of Christians coming together with the specific purpose of living in submission to what Jesus says. This thing that Jesus said about, I will build my church, he said that in the context of Peter recognizing him for the first time as his Messiah. When Peter said to Jesus, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, this was Peter expressing his submission to the authority of Jesus. It was Peter demonstrating his obedience to who Jesus was. It was in that context that Jesus said, right, now I can start building my church. When Peter and when the disciples started to really knuckle under to the authority of Jesus, then Jesus said, right, now lads, we can start thinking about building the church. They're absolutely tied up. And in fact, in the next chapter, in Matthew 17, you have the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. When Jesus is transfigured into his heavenly glory, Peter and James and John are there, and that God actually speaks to the disciples while Jesus is being transfigured. And what God said to them was this. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And a church is a group of Christians who are listening to Jesus. But not just listening, but doing what he's telling them. Now let me ask you, how do you listen to Jesus? How do we know what Jesus wants? The Bible. Can you see, it always boils back down to this, living as a church in submission to what the Bible says. So there's the first thing, we've seen that Jesus builds his church. But the next thing is this, we build the church with him. 
back to Psalm 121, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labour in vain. So in saying that Jesus is going to build his church, we're not saying that therefore we can just be passive. Jesus will build his church through us, precisely because we are the church. You remember in John 5, Jesus said this, <coughs> he said, my father is working still and I am working. What happened was that Jesus only did what he saw his father doing. What he knew his father wanted to do through him, Jesus let him and did it. And in precisely the same way for us, what we must be saying is Jesus is working still and we are working. Because we know what Jesus wants to do, we know that Jesus is living in us, we know that he's going to provide the power and everything we need. Therefore, we can afford to do it. And as we step out in obedience, and as we step out in faith, therefore Jesus is going to actually accomplish this through us. What we're seeing is this. God, in building the church, is making a fit dwelling place for his son to live in. The church is Jesus' home. Now, would you want your son, I mean, say you had a son, he's 18 on his 18th birthday, he says, right, mum, I'm leaving home, I'm off, tatar, you know. Would you be happy if he ended up living in a dustbin somewhere? Or would you be happy if he ended up living in some bed and breakfast slum? You wouldn't, would you? I mean, fathers want their sons to live in nice places, places they like. And in exactly the same way, God the Father wants Jesus to be living in a home that he likes. A place where he actually does feel at home. So I said earlier, in our home, Belinda and I are free to do what we like. That is what your home is all about. Jesus wants to have a home, a group of people, in whom and through whom he can do what he likes. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing today. Now let's get to our first word, church. What does it actually mean? The Greek word for church is ecclesia. And it comes from two Greek words, ek, which means out of, all right, and klesia, which comes from the Greek verb to call, all right? And it literally means called out of. That is what the word church, ecclesia, means. Now, in the Old Testament, the equivalent word in the Hebrew is kahal, and that means to summon, right? So we've got called out of, and we've got summoned. And that now we can have a definition, finally, of what a church is. It is those people summoned by God out of the world to hear and to do his will. That is what a local church is. When Christians in a local area come together as those people who have been called out of the world and gathered together with one purpose, to do the will of God. There's that old hymn sometimes we sing that God is here and that to bless us. And I suppose that's true, but it's very easy to end up thinking in terms that God is here for our convenience. Can you see, you know, we want God to do this, this, this and this, and that, that, that and that. And it almost turns on we think that God is here for our benefit. Well, because he loves us, he is. But the real truth isn't that he's here for us, we 
are supposed to be here for him. Can you see? His subjects gathering around the king to find out what the king wills so that they can then, as servants, go out and do what the king has told them to. <coughs> In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, we saw this last week. Paul said, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we've seen that a church is a group of people who are called out of the world to do what Jesus tells them to do. But now we hit up against this word member. Member, alright? So what does it mean to be a member of the church? And uh, in fact, what I'm going to say now is the reason why here at this fellowship we don't have a membership role. You can't actually come and join this church, all right? Because we don't practice membership in that way. And I'll show you why. In the Greek, this word, member, when Paul says you're the body of Christ and members of it, the Greek word is melos. And what it means is a member in the sense of limbs. Can you see? In the sense, if you cut your foot off, you dismember yourself. Now that is what the Greek word means. It means a member of a body in the same way that a hand or an arm is a member of your own physical body. And of course the thing is that in a healthy body, your limbs, your members, are going to be doing what your head tells you. All right. What we must understand is that this Greek word is never used in the context of like having membership at a cricket club or membership of a, a hockey club, or something like that. Can you see, the all-important point is this. You become part of a local church because you are already a member of the body of Christ. Can you see? The only way you can become a member of the church universe is to get converted. That is why the idea of Christians becoming members in a particular church is so lunatic. It simply means that you take your place in whatever local church that God leads you into. And the idea of saying, right now we want you to be members and have little service and you get the right hand of fellowship and stuff like that, you know, and they welcome you into membership. This is absolutely crazy. It's not what the Bible speaks about at all. So that here, God has brought us together as a church, but because we are already limbs in the body of Christ. We are already members in the body of Christ. Therefore, we can take our place in a local church. We can take our place in Jesus' local home. Because after all, here in Chigwell, what Jesus is saying, he says, I want to have a group of people that I can live in in Chigwell. You see, Jesus wants to live everywhere. He wants to live in America, he wants to live in South Africa, he wants to live in Neasden. Well, only Jesus, you know, could want to live in Neasden, couldn't he really, being God? But can you see, and, and, and here in Chigwell, Jesus says, look, I want a pad in Chigwell. He's a real jet setter, you know, he's got, got houses all over the place. And he says, I want a pad in Chigwell. So he calls together a group of people so that we can be his home. And like members of that little mini local body, Jesus can move us as his body in any way that he wants. So again, we're back to this one fundamental thing. The church is Jesus' home. And the local church is Jesus' local home. Now think about it. <coughs> if you go to someone's house, 
Why do you go there? Well, you go to somebody's house to see the occupants, all right? You may have a valid interest in the house, but you're primarily going there to see the person who lives there. I mean, let's say that, uh, sort of say, there was a knock on our door and Blinder and I answered the door and, and you came in, all right, and you marched in and you said, oh, wow, look, look at those curtains. Oh, what lovely curtains. Oh, that, that's really terrific. And oh, what a marvellous television set. Oh, I like that. What, what mate? Oh, the carpets. Oh, they're unbelievable. And that sofa. Oh, my God. And the kitchen. Oh, this is absolutely marvellous. And then walks out singing the praises of your home without even having said hello to you. Now, can you see? It's valid for people to have an interest in your home. But if someone comes to your home, they're coming to see you not your home. Now, in precisely the same way, if the church is Jesus' home, it's for primarily one reason. So that the world, so that unbelievers can meet Jesus in us. Now, if they like us as well, if they like Jesus' house as well, all the better. You know, I mean, there's, there's nothing sort of virtuous in, in sort of being thought of to be a really horrible home, is there? You know, so I mean, let's hope people like us. But the point is that you go to someone's home to meet the person who lives there. And we, in God's plan, are what he's doing so that people here in Chigwell or whatever locality you're in, so that people here in Chigwell can meet with Jesus. And the reason is that if you want to go and see someone, you have to actually go to their homes. Most homes stay in the same place. Jesus has the most mobile home going, because we're walking around the streets, driving our cars, going to work, everywhere. Can you see? Jesus has got a local roving home so that non-Christians, when they hit up against us, can meet Jesus, who lives in us. And that, finally, is what it's all about. God wants the world to meet with Jesus when they meet with us, because Jesus is living in us as a church. So then, right, we've said God wants people to see Jesus in us. But how does that happen? It's all very well to say, oh, yeah, right, I really want people to see Jesus. But how does that happen? All right. Well, what I want you to do is go to John 12. And in John 12, we have the parallel passage to the one we read in Matthew. And this was why I read on in the point where Jesus was saying that if any man shall follow me, deny himself, take up his cross, etc., etc. And in John 12, we have the equivalent passage. And if you find verse 20... We hit on these verses a couple of weeks ago. Now we're there again. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These came to Philip, <coughs> who was from Bethsaida, and said to him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Now can you see how this is going to answer our question? The world is supposed to see Jesus in us. And here some Greeks who aren't Christians, they go up to Philip and they say, we want to see Jesus, all right? 
So then Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew went with Philip and they told Jesus. So Jesus is now going to tell them how it can be that Greeks or the world out there can see Jesus in us, his people. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. When was Jesus glorified? Was it when he healed the sick? No. Although we will consider that, that it was pretty glorifying if the sick were healed. And it is, but that's not when Jesus was glorified. Was he glorified when loads of people got converted? No, he wasn't. Was he glorified because he preached such incredibly wise and powerful sermons? No. Jesus was glorified when he died on the cross. All right. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life, shall, can you see the parallel with the Matthew passage we read? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. <coughs> now, how is it that Jesus can be seen in his church? How is it that the world can brush up against Jesus when they brush up against us? And the answer is this. It's going to happen to the extent that we are willing to die to ourselves. It's going to be to the extent that God has brought us to the end of our lives. When it's no longer us doing our thing, when it's no longer our plans, this is precisely the same for churches. It's no use churches doing their own thing. However uh, sort of traditional that thing may be, the only way we discover what Jesus wants is through the pages of the scripture. And it's only when God has brought us to the end of ourselves, when we've died to what we want, we've died to our plans, we've died to our ingenuity and our talents, it's only then that Jesus can live through us in our place. And therefore the way in which as a church, we can actually be showing Jesus to the world is when we are willing to really let God deal with us, to bring us absolutely to the end of ourselves. When we can say in the way that Paul experienced, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's a complete surrender to Jesus to have his way in us, no matter what. Being willing to let all the sacred cows even be killed. Because remember, God is, we talk about people being slain in the spirit. It's not a particularly satisfactory term biblically, but God is in the business of uh, sacred cows are supposed to get slain in the spirit. Can you see? God just wants to destroy and knock down everything that isn't of him, no matter how dear it might be to us. I heard a wonderful story Years ago, I read about this. There's a guy called James Calvert. And uh, this is sort of like, oh, about 150 years ago. And God called him and a group of people to go and be missionaries or evangelists to the cannibals on the Fiji Islands. The Fiji Islands hadn't really been hit by civilization. And I mean, well, in the first few instances when civilization did hit the Fiji Islands, they got eaten because the Fiji Islands were, you know, they were cannibals. Now James Calvert and some friends of his 
God called them to take the gospel to the Fiji Islands, knowing full well that they were going to, to tell cannibals about Jesus. Well, they managed to fix up a, a ship that was, you know, sort of like taking them there. <coughs> but when the ship kind of moored off of the Fiji Islands, normally the captain or some of the, the, the crew would kind of, they get one of the big rowing boats out and they take you over. Well, of course, this particular captain wasn't prepared to do that. He just gave them the rowing boat and he said, look, you can get over there yourself. I'm not sending any of my men over there to get eaten. And so James Calvert and his friends, they got in this rowing boat and the captain was pleading with them to change their minds. He thought they were absolutely crazy. And he said, don't you realise that if you go over there to those islands, you will die, you will be dead men. And James Calvert turned to him, standing in the boat, and he looked up and he said, but we died before we came here. Now, that's what being part of the church means. We're dead to what we want. It's not us anymore, it's Jesus, it's him. That kind of surrender is what the Holy Spirit is wanting to work in us. Right, so we've looked at church, seen what that means, and we've seen membership, what, what that means. Now we move on to the third one, fellowship. And the third thing I want to say is this, that we build the church with each other, with Jesus. We've seen that Jesus builds it, and that's the most important. And we've seen that we individually build it with him. But it's more than that, because we must build the church with each other with Jesus. And that this is what fellowship is all about. You'll remember last time we saw in the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father. It's not Christians coming together all saying, My Father. It's Christians coming together saying, Our Father. It's a corporate experience that God has called us to. Romans 12, verses 4 to 5, just listen to these because it's important. Paul says, For as in one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Now, will you notice, last week we saw that we are individually members, or we are individually part of the body of Christ. We are individually part of Jesus. But look what Paul says here. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. This is why lone Christianity is so silly. It's no use saying, oh well, it's just me and Jesus. It can't be just you and Jesus. Our relationship with Jesus, we never lose the individual aspects. Of course we don't. Individuality must never be lost. But to be individually one with Jesus means that you are by definition part of each other. Because there are other Christians around. And that we must always realise this, there is no way that we can ever, ever go it alone. We are members, limbs, part of the body of each other. You need me, I need you. We need each other. And in 1 John 1 verse 7, Paul says, we, John said, we have fellowship one with another. 
So that let's, let's understand now what fellowship actually means. Because, again, we use it very glibly, don't we? We say, oh, I'm going along to the fellowship, or, you know, isn't it lovely to have fellowship together, you know, and sort of stuff like that. Well, <coughs> the actual Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. And what it means in the Greek is a partnership. That's its literal meaning, a partnership. When two parties strike a deal that binds them together, it commits them to each other, to each other, a partnership. And that in the context of our lives together as Christians, what fellowship means is the sharing of our lives together. Opening up our lives to each other, sharing our lives with each other. This is what it's all about. And remember, tonight, here we are for our teaching evening. And having a teaching evening is right and proper. But tonight, we're not really having fellowship in the true sense of the word. Can you say, this is a meeting. It's a meeting that's important. But you can't have fellowship sitting there looking at the back of somebody's head. Because that, in effect, is what you're doing. Can you see? And at the moment, you're concentrating on one person, me. Now, however delightful that may be, fellowship means that we, we've got to be concentrating on each other. So this is a meeting. And many, many Christians, they go to their meetings and they say, oh, lovely fellowship, isn't it? And all they've done, night after night, is they're sitting there looking at the back of someone's head, and if they're very lucky, that person will turn around and say hello before they go. And they say, that's fellowship. That's not fellowship, that's going to meetings. Fellowship is what happens in and out of our homes in the rest of the week. That is where true fellowship happens. Now also, I said that koinonia means the coming together of two parties in commitment. But there's another little kind of emphasis of meaning in the Greek. Because when you've got two parties coming together, they're committed to each other, there are two sides of the coin. They're giving and they're taking. Alright, so there are two things that need to be emphasised. The Greek word koinonia does not emphasise taking. It emphasises the giving. That is what the word means. More than just the partnership, but the giving into that partnership. The living out of your responsibility in that partnership. Never mind the uh, other parties' responsibility, our part. Can you see? That is what it's emphasising. So again, if you have Christians who only take, if you have Christians who, who, who kind of, that within the context of them having fellowship, they don't give. Can you see? They never give a thing. Now, they can say they're in fellowship, but they're not. You're only in fellowship when you're giving. Now, give and you'll receive. If you want to be blessed, you come along and bless others. But if you just think, oh, I want to be blessed, that's all, and you sit there, I'm going to be blessed tonight, I haven't got time. You won't be blessed, you know, for a start, you're out of fellowship with God with an attitude like that, can you see? So therefore, the emphasis is, we are only in fellowship when we are giving. So it's the sharing of our lives together. But it's not saying, oi, you lot, you've got to share your life with me. No, 
Fellowship is when I say, I give you my life. You might not want it, that's, you might walk all over it. But can you see, if we were all living in that kind of attitude, then because we were giving of ourselves so liberally, can you see how much we'd all receive? How blessed, I mean, we'd all be so blessed up to the eyeballs. You know, it'd just be spilling out over everybody. So therefore, it's the sharing of our lives together but with the emphasis on what you can do to give. Not what you get back, but the emphasis on what you can do to give. What we've got is this. In the Bible, church is the group of people that God has called out to live in obedience to his will, live according to scripture in every way. And in those people, Jesus lives because he wants to make himself known to the world. Membership is to be part of Christ. It's to be part of Jesus. Now that happened the moment you were born again. You are members of his body already. Membership is your individual relationship to Jesus as part of his body. But fellowship is the fact that we must be part of each other. Now, can you see that if you've got Christians who are into membership in the sense that all they're emphasising is, I'm, I'm one with Jesus, alright? But there's no emphasis on being part of other Christians. They're kidding themselves. They're living in cloud cuckoo land. And in fact, the only way that we can grow more and more individually closer to Jesus in our relationship with him is to commit ourselves more and more to fellowship. You cannot grow in your relationship with Jesus if you try to do it merely on your own. You must never ever let go of the fact that you have a relationship with Jesus as an individual. We're not talking Christian communism here. You're not kind of submersed as an individual at the mercy of the corporate state, the church. <coughs> no, that individual relationship with Jesus is always maintained, but it will grow and flourish and blossom to the extent that we are giving ourselves to each other, recognising that not only are we part of Christ, but that we are therefore part of each other as well. What I want to show you now is that, in fact, as far as the Bible is concerned, our relationship with the Lord is gauged, in actual fact, by our relationships with other people. All right. So when you get people say, I've got a relationship with Jesus, I'll tell you the way to find out whether they're telling porkies. All right. Because you don't look at their relationship with Jesus. All right. Because Jesus is invisible down here. Don't see him very often, do we, you see? So you can't tell what someone's relationship with Jesus is like by looking at their relationship with Jesus. You find out what their relationship with Jesus is like by looking at their relationship with other people. Now the first thing is this, our commitment to Jesus is gauged by our commitment to each other. 1 John 3 verse 16, he says, by this we know love, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now can you see, you can be in worship and you can say, oh Jesus, I love you, Jesus, I love you, 10,000 times every day. 
But whether or not you are committed to Jesus is going to reveal itself by how much you are committed to other people. How much you are committed to serving not yourself but them. How much you are committed to looking not for your needs but looking at their needs and see what they need. So there's a very solid test. Our commitment to Jesus is gauged by our commitment to each other. More than that, our love for Jesus is gauged by our love for each other. 1 John 4 verse 8, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And in verse 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. The Bible is not too nice to call people liars, alright? If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Can you see? You can't find out if someone loves God by looking at their relationship with God, because God is invisible. Alright? You find out if someone loves God by looking at their relationship with other people who are visible. You can actually see what they do for them. It's practical. And if it doesn't boil down to that practical level, it's absolutely crazy. It's, it's just pie in the sky. It's hogwash. It's hooey. It's total unreality. The Bible is all the time earthing us in the reality of day-to-day -day life. Thirdly, our fellowship with God is gauged by our fellowship with others. Actually, go to 1 John. Let's actually look at this one together. 1 John... Chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. <coughs> I want to show you something very interesting here. 1 John 1, verse 6. If we say we have fellowship, koinonia, sharing, if we say we have fellowship with him, that is God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not live according to the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, can you see, something very, very interesting is cropping up here. John is saying that we must be in fellowship with each other. It's no use saying, well, I'm in fellowship with God. That is meaningless unless we are in meaningful fellowship with each other. But look what he says. He says, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know... It's very easy, these verses, you know, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, it's very easy to take them absolutely out of context. Can you see that the blood of Jesus cleansing us from all sin is linked to the condition of being in genuine fellowship with each other? The reason being, if you're not right with me, you're not right with God. If I'm not right with you, I'm not right with God. Alright? It's as simple as that. And if you're out of fellowship with God for whatever reason, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So therefore, even if we confess our sins whilst out of fellowship with God, God isn't listening. Can you see? He's not listening. So therefore, there's got to be this meaningful fellowship between us. And when you get people who are talking, they say, oh, 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 wonderful, wonderful fellowship with Jesus, you know. And, uh, and yet somehow there is no evidence of them having fellowship with other Christians in any degree at all. Just these, these kind of loners. 
uh, sort of mooning around, floating around on seventh heaven, you know, hardly anything to do with anyone else at all. Can you see what a sham that is? Our fellowship with Jesus is shown by our fellowship with each other. And then one last thing. Our forgiveness from God when we confess our sins is dependent on the fact that we have forgiven other people's sins. Uh, Matthew 6 verse 15, and this is immediately after the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now can you see what this is about? It's showing us that we're kidding ourselves if we think we can be right with God and in fellowship with God if we're not right with other people and in fellowship with them. You see what I'm saying? Now, obviously, if there are some people who won't have fellowship with you and you are genuinely innocent in that, that's no problem. That's no problem. But what I'm saying is, when you're not in fellowship with people and it's, it's from your side that the fellowship has been broken, then the truth of the matter is that we're not properly in fellowship with God. And so, therefore, if someone has sinned against you and you haven't forgiven them, all right, then when you confess your sins, God says, no, sorry, sorry, you're not back in relationship with me till they're back in relationship with you. And it's as simple as that. Now, in this saying that God won't forgive us our trespasses until we've forgiven those who've sinned against us, that's not talking about loss of salvation. It's talking about getting back into fellowship with God relationship-wise. So, I mean, say someone has done something against you, and it might have been awful. It might have been wicked. It might have been the most rottenest thing that anyone has ever done to anybody, and it was done against poor old you, alright? Regardless of that, if you're resenting that person, if you haven't forgiven that person from your heart, well, Father isn't listening to you. All he's saying is you've got to forgive that person. How can you expect me to forgive you your sins if you're not willing to forgive that person their sins? And this is why there's often times when, in fact, we're going to the Lord and we're confessing our sins to him for all we're worth, and the reason we're doing it with such gusto is we're trying to get round that very niggling little fact that God is telling us that there's someone we've got to go and say sorry to. Do you know what I mean? You know, when you're confessing absolutely every sin in your life except the one God's convicting you of. Have you ever done that before? You know, sort of like God's convicting you, sort of maybe a, you know, a harsh word against someone at work, all right? And suddenly, suddenly, oh, you're so repentant about the way you've treated your wife. Oh, goodness, you're so humble all of a sudden. Oh, dear, I'm so, oh, darling, forgive me for how horrible. And can you see, you're doing that to cover the fact that God's saying, no, you've got to go and say sorry to him, not her, him, you see? It's, it's so, this is the reality of it, that we must make sure that there is no one against whom we are holding unforgiveness. Can you see, <coughs> at every point, our relationship with God is gauged by our relationship with other people, be they Christians or non-Christians. Now again, I emphasise, if there are people who can't stand you, and it's not your fault, make sure it isn't your fault, alright, because uh, I, I mean supposing there are people who can't stand you, you have got to make sure that 
that that isn't because you're such an impossible person. Can you, can you see what I mean? But there are times when someone, you know, when people aren't interested in you, they don't like you, you're wasting your time trying to have fellowship with them. If that's not from your side, no problem. But can you see, the truth of the matter is that at all points our relationship with God is gauged by our relationship with other people. So let's come just to one or two more things, real nitty-gritty here. Because what we have got to do in our own hearts is that we have got to quite consciously and willfully commit ourselves to fellowship. Now, I am not talking about here signing forms, uh, anything like that. You know, I, I'm joining your church and this is church for life and I give the elders authority to say anything to me they want to. I'm not talking about commit yourself to fellowship in that way. I'm saying in our hearts, can you see that wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, we must be committed in our hearts to having fellowship with the true meaningful fellowship with those believers amongst whom God has put us. Uh, when I used to live in Suffolk, it was all coal fires and log fires and stuff like that. I used to go out and chop the trees down. It was great. And then chuck them on the fire. Um, but one thing that... I, one night, you know, we had a nice, really big coal fire going and there was this bit of coal on the top and it was really glowing and the whole fire was red and it was lovely. And then as it burnt down a bit, this bit on the top, it just toppled down, rolled down out of the fire and landed on the half. And it was glowing, absolutely red. And of course, Paul said, be a glow with the Holy Spirit, you see, be a glow with the Holy Spirit. And yet within five minutes, that, that bit of coal that was burning and, and red and warm and glowing, it was absolutely dead. Just sitting there all messy and horrible and just sort of, you know, bits of smoke and smoking the whole room out. It was awful. Now can you see, that is what is going to happen to you or me if we are not in genuine fellowship. A lump of coal cannot glow on its own. The only way a lump of coal can glow is when you put it with lots of other lumps of coal and set light to them. And the only way that you and I are really going to be aglow with the Spirit is when together we are moving in the fire and the power of the Holy Spirit. Can you see how important that is? Let's just go through four things, five things, forgive me, five things, practical nitty-gritty. If you really want to commit to fellowship, this is what you and I must do. Number one, ask forgiveness from those you've sinned against. That is the starting point. You cannot be in fellowship with people if you have things done against them that you haven't put right. Now, I'm not saying that you've got to go through the annals of your entire life history, back to the age of 13, trying to contact everyone you've ever sinned against. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I'm saying is, that in the circles in which you move, be it at work, be it socially, be it in your fellowship, are there people in those circles with whom you mix regularly, your next door neighbours, and I, I have known Christians who own, the only times they've ever spoken to their next door neighbours have been when they've leaned over the fence and sworn at them for something. Now, can you see, something like that has got to be put right. So, therefore, <coughs> you've got to ask forgiveness from those you've sinned against. You've got to go 
and say sorry to those people whom God really says, now look, you know really in your heart, you've got to go and say sorry. And I've had experiences more than once, let me tell you as well, when God has had me go and say sorry to the last person I wanted to say sorry to. They've been different people at different points in my history, yes. But at every point in our lives, there's one person we don't want to say sorry to, isn't there? I'm very careful that I don't sin against that person. Because I know how awful it is if I have to go and say sorry. But time and time again, when I've had to go and say sorry, and, and I mean, I've experienced having them all smirky and self-righteous, and, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter if you owe them an apology, you go and give it to them. What they do with it is up to them. Secondly, <coughs> you must start putting the needs of other people in the fellowship before your own personal needs. Alright? Um, I expect you've experienced the same as I have. Um, that there are certain sources Throughout your life, you can look back to certain kind of ways or special sources through which God has really spoken to you and really blessed you. It might be a particular Bible teacher, or it might be a particular Christian writer, or it might be a particular Christian friend of yours, all right? And that we can all look back and we can see particular ways, something through which God has blessed us again and again and again and again. Well, in actual fact, I've experienced this, and one of the main ways that God has spoken to me, and again and again and again, he's blessed me through it, is Star Trek. I'll tell you, no, I'll tell you, when, when, when they rerun Star Trek, as they will, I'll tell you what, you watch Star, Star Trek having prayed first, and I'll tell you, the Lord, he'll always give you a gem, I'll tell you, an absolute gem. And time and time again, God has spoke, spoken to me as I've watched Star Trek. Anyway, after all those years of having it on TV, then they started to make the feature films. Well, I mean, if the TV series is good, I'll tell you, the feature films, they're like Bible college. I mean, the, no, they're not. No, I enjoyed the Star Trek films. No, but, <laughs> can you see what I mean? The Star Trek films are absolutely full of good wisdom, you know, biblical truth. Not that Gene Roddenberry is trying to do it, but it's there. Now, do you remember in The Wrath of Khan, all right, the Wrath of Khan. And right at the end, they, they'd blown Khan and his spaceship up. But in the meantime, uh, the Starship Enterprise had got sort of zapped by a photon torpedo. Now, that's serious. It was very, very tense, all right. And it had got zapped by this photon torpedo. And what was happening is that the dilithium crystals were overloading. Now, this is horrendous because it, it could have killed them all. Now, therefore, the, the reactor room was was now full of the radiation from the dilithium crystals. But in order to save the Enterprise, someone had to get in there and turn the dilithium crystals off. But whoever went in there would have been killed. Anyway, what was happening is that Jim was arguing with Bones about which one was going in there, you see. Now, that's what I'd have been doing. I'd have just kept arguing until someone else went in there. And, of course, what happened was that suddenly they turned round and, and, and in the reactor room it was behind all this glass. And what, there's Spock. Spock in there and he's turned off the reactor and they're safe. But, of course, he is now being killed by the radiation from 
the dilithium crystals. And it gets really, I cried, I will admit I cried, because I love Spock, I really do. He's been a close friend for many, many years. And, and he's kind of, you know, sort of leaning up on the glass. And he's kind of sinking down like that, you see. And then there's Jim, the other side, Jim, Jim Curtin. He's going, oh, Spock, Spock, why did you do it? Why did you do it? And they're both going down the glass and, and Spock saying, oh, Jim, Jim. And Jim's saying, oh, Spock, Spock, you see. And then what happens is that Spock, just before he expires, all right, just before he dies, what he says is he looks at Jim and they're pressed, their noses pressed up against each other through the glass. And what he says is, he says, Jim, he says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the needs of the one. <laughs> and then he died. But can you see, that is absolutely what the Bible teaches. And that if all of us had that attitude, can you see how absolutely wonderful it would be? Okay, now then, third thing, third thing. Start taking advice and correction. This is an absolutely vital part of being in fellowship. The only thing that prevents us from taking advice and being corrected is pride and stubbornness. And pride and stubbornness are our arch enemies in the Christian life because things like pride and stubbornness are the very things that God is wanting to overcome in our lives. And in fellowship, it helps us do it because we have to start submitting to each other and knuckling under to each other. Now, I'm not meaning by this that we all start interfering in each other's lives and that as soon as you see someone do something wrong, piling in like a ton of bricks. Uh, neither do I mean that I want us to become the types of Christians who are always, 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 without fail, challenging you. Do you know what I mean? I've met these Christians. Their favourite phrase is, oh, do you think that's wise? Now, do you know what I mean? And some fellowships have them. They're a real pain, you know, because it doesn't matter what you're saying to them. You say, oh, I saw a great film last night. Do you think that was wise? Was it science fiction? Or, some, or, or I read a really good book. Or I hope it wasn't occult. Can you see? And they're always there, kind of waiting. They're just dying to correct you for some. I found sometimes I've gone to fellowships and I've spoken there, and no one there knows me from Adam, all right? And that afterwards, I had complete strangers trying to give me advice about being a Bible teacher. Can you see how incredible? There are always Christians who just want to be putting you wrong. I'm not talking about that. I'm simply saying that when the need clearly arises, that we love each other enough to challenge each other, maybe sometimes, to correct each other, to say, oh, I'm not sure about that. Just, just pray about that. Nothing heavy alright, and to speak advice to each other and we need to be humble enough to actually allow each other to do that to us. Right, number four. <coughs> I know that some are already doing this and it's great, but the more who do it the better. Start inviting people round for meals and get to know each other personally. And also, let me say, it doesn't matter if you're not a cordon bleu cook, alright. It doesn't matter if you don't live in a mansion. Belinda and I have a little one-bedroom council flat, you see. And I'll tell you, we're not ashamed of it. It's our home. And maybe if some of you think, but my house isn't very nice, or I couldn't really give them very good meals. Let me tell you, if you come round to our flat and you don't like coming round to a one-bedroom council flat, that's your problem, not us. You take our home the way you find it. It's as simple as that. Don't 
don't have this inferiority complex. Don't worry about, oh, if I open my home, people are going to think, oh, oh, dear. No, no one's going to come in doing that. And if they do, that's their problem, not yours. Throw your homes open. Invite people round for a meal. Tonight, we're starting this list of names so that everyone here, everyone in the fellowship who wants to, can get their name down and we'll have a directory so at any point any of us know how to get in touch with anyone. This really getting to know each other and there's no better way to do that than to have people round for a meal. I mean, even the world knows that that is a good way to get to know each other and, and we ought to do that. And then number five, start being what you are. Do you remember last week I was uh, emphasising the fact that the Christian life isn't becoming something. The Christian life is realising and being what you already are. So therefore, we have got to start being what we actually are. And the thing that I'm going to raise here is this. We are humble servants. And we have got to start being that. Servanthood. We are here to serve each other and those around us. Jesus himself, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And then he washed their feet. We don't need to do feet washing today. Although I did get a whiff of Julian's last night, and I can see that sometimes it's in all. But can you see, obviously, we don't... <laughs> but then, on the other hand, you ought to smell Belinda's. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So we don't... <laughs> Protest from the kitchen. Sorry, darling, sorry. E extra big kiss tonight. No, but can you see what I'm saying? We don't need feet washing today, but in the, in the ancient world, feet washing was the place of the servant par excellence, you see. And that is the position we've got to take. And we mustn't be like the bloke who says, I'm okay at being a servant until people start treating me like one. Can you see? Because you only find out if you're a servant when you're happy that people do treat you a bit like a servant, can you see? And uh, so we've got to start, you know, sort of taking this attitude amongst each other. Now this is what it means to be part of a local church. This is what the local church is for, and what I've been outlining is the attitude that God wants us to have so that we can fully play our part in it. So then, we've looked at the whole thing about the gifts of the Spirit we've seen that the gifts of the Spirit are for ministry in the church. So we've done two studies on what that means, fellowship, the church, the whole thing. But you see, now we've got to move on, because when Paul teaches on the gifts of the Spirit, it's within the context of fellowship in the church, but something else as well. He teaches about the gifts in the context of that lovely chapter 13 about love. And the reason he does that is this. The gifts of the Spirit are given to the church. You must never isolate the gifts of the Spirit from being part of the church. That's dangerous. We've seen what the church and what fellowship is. And can you see the reason why Paul had love in there, 1 Corinthians 13, is for this reason. The heart of fellowship is love. So we're going to move on to four studies, four more studies, and we're going to be looking at love from different angles. But we've done fellowship last week and tonight, but in the next four studies, in actual fact, although we'll be doing love and not fellowship, it's the next four studies which are going to show us individually 
how we need to be in our hearts before God in order for us to play the part that God wants us to play as part of the church, part of the Chigwell Christian Fellowship or whatever church it is that God has put you onto. So then, therefore, next week we work absolutely to the heart of everything that Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14. We will finish there.